672. Turn to 672 in the hymnal where you can find uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And we are going to be considering the topic of chapter 4, paragraph 1 together today. So chapter 4 on creation. And we'll read paragraph 1 and then we'll pray and we'll, um, we'll consider these, these things together. 672 right at the bottom. The confession reads in paragraph 1, In the beginning it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. So let's pray together, ask God's help, and then we'll consider these subjects together. Let's pray. Father, again, as we gather this afternoon to consider the things of your word as they are summarized for us in the confession, we pray again that you would draw near to us and bless us. We thank you for these full Lord's days and the blessing of fellowship in between the encouragement of the saints. We thank you for um, two, uh, two seasons spent in your word, considering the things of your word. Father, we pray that you would instruct our hearts Teach us, make us those who are skilled in the word of truth. We pray, Lord, especially as we think of the subject of creation and how much this is a subject that is denied and suppressed in our day, that as your people, we would stand firm on your word and that we would defend its truthfulness with love, with care, and with gentleness, but with firmness and conviction. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that you have not left us without the revelation of how this world came to be, but you have told us how we were made, when we were made, and why we were made. And Father, we pray that we would spend our lives for that purpose, that we would live for your glory, knowing that you are our creator and our redeemer. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to bring others to believe that same truth, that they would know Christ, that they would love your word. Father, draw near to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we're jumping back into our confession. We are in beginning chapter 4. And the confession, as you probably have noticed, moves in a logical order. It progresses upon what came before. And chapter 1 begins with the Holy Scriptures, where we consider the source of our knowledge of God, our saving knowledge of God, Chapter 2 then moves into considering the being and the attributes of God, who God is in Himself. Chapter 3, which is where we were the last uh, few times, dealt with God's eternal decree or eternal plan of all that would take place in history. And now, in chapter 4, it covers the creation of the world, um, the beginning of God's works in history. And... um, just to kind of summarize this uh, chapter, paragraph 1 deals with the general creation of the world. Chapter 2 deals with the creation of, of man. Or sorry, am I saying chapter? Paragraph 2 begins with the creation of man. And paragraph 3 deals with man's blessed condition in that first state. So we're just going to consider paragraph 1 this afternoon. I think it's worth 
uh, spending some time thinking about creation, and, and especially given the context of our day. Um, the first thing that the Bible addresses for us is the age-old question of origins. Um, where did we come from? Where did all of this that we see and we smell and we taste come from? And flowing out of that question of where did we come from, come the questions that follow things like, what is the meaning and significance of all of this? Is there any meaning? Um, as we're going to see, what you believe about our origins and the beginning uh, has a lot to do with how you will interpret and live in the present. Um, that's why, for instance, Darwinism and evolutionary um, theory, they're not just speculations about how things began and how they came to be, but they actually are worldviews that have profound uh, and often terrible effects on our ethics, how we ought to live. What you believe about the beginning informs who we are, why we're here, how we ought to, to live and conduct ourselves. Um, the Bible's account of our origin is foundational to the, Christians, the Christian worldview because it doesn't just simply answer, it doesn't answer just the simple question of how did we get here, but in addressing that question of how we got here, it simultaneously addresses the question of why we are here. From the very beginning of Genesis, the Bible establishes our existence inseparably from our Creator who made us. Um, we exist, this world exists, according to Genesis 1 and 2, because the God that we considered in chapter 2 of the confession, who is in need of nothing, who is self-sufficient, that God was pleased to create this world and us for His own glory and for our own good. And that sounds simple. It, I mean, it is simple at one level. But there's almost nothing more foundational and fundamental than that to our worldview. Um, creation in the Bible doesn't just answer our curiosities, but it lays the foundation for things like ethics, things like worship, um, things like the purpose of man, things like the goodness of creation. Um, but even more than that, the creation account lays the foundation for our understanding of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, we come face to face with two things. We first of all come face to face with God who is infinitely separate and unique from His creation, not dependent upon His creation. And at the same time, we come face to face with man the creature who is inescapably dependent upon His Creator. And it is those two things that give us the categories for understanding the Gospel and understanding the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ, being very God of very God, became man for our salvation. Um, now, man is... Um, can't remember how Calvin put it. Is incurably religious, something like that. Insatiably religious. Um, Man, even if he doesn't worship the true God, he will worship some God of his own imagination. And because of that, man has sought out many different and varying explanations of where we came from. Uh, Joel Beakey said, quote, false views of creation stem from belief in false gods. And that's true. Um, and we could name several. I'll give you just a, a few to, to consider. Um, Another view, contrary to the biblical view of creation, is polytheism. 
And polytheism is the idea that at least two, if not more, there are at least two or more first causes of man and this universe. Oftentimes within polytheism, you have multiple gods. Often this creation in man is, is in these stories is said to be the result of the offspring of the gods or sometimes the result of the gods warring with one another, which caused reality as we know it. Um, but polytheism denies the God of the Bible's ultimate lordship over all things. Um, our God is not just a God. He is the God, the true and the living God, and there is no other. Um, another example of, of another explanation of where we came from in our origin is pantheism, such as common in Hinduism. Um, in pantheism, there really is no distinction between God and the world. And that's actually, literally, if you break down the meaning of pantheism, it means that all is God. Um, and uh, that destroys, though, again, what we call biblically the transcendence of God. That uh, God is never, in the Bible, equated with His creation or put on the same level as, he, as His creation. But rather, He's described as the Lord over creation and the Lord of creation. Um, the one who stands above and is greater than his creation. Um, or, or a third one I'll mention here, which is the most currently, as far as I know, the most popularly held theory of origin is what's known as materialism. Um, and that would be very popular in particularly the U.S. and Europe. Um, materialism is often associated with atheism. Uh, materialism is the idea that physical matter and the energy of the universe has always existed. Um, Charles Darwin and others embraced a type of materialism. And what materialism does inevitably is it removes any idea of an all-wise God who creates and governs and judges the world. It's a very convenient thing for the sinner who wants to remain in darkness. And what we've seen even in history prove is that inevitably materialism leads to idolatry and it leads to deifying the creation and it leads to gross types of sin and wrongs being done towards others. It essentially removes ethics and any absolute um, rule by which we govern whether something is right or whether something is wrong. And that fits right with what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, is that those who refuse to worship the true God, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the visible things of the creation. Um, well, with some of those kind of, kind of things in our mind, the confession states here with great simplicity and clarity what the church has confessed throughout the ages of her existence. I'll read the paragraph again. Paragraph 1. In the beginning it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. I want to just open up some of these main big ideas here. Um, and I've tried to keep it brief uh, for the sake of having questions if we want interaction at the end. But first of all, notice that creation is a Trinitarian act. It says it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, this is present in Genesis 1. Um, 
And it will be developed and elaborated on in later parts of God's revelation in the Scriptures. For instance, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep or the waters. There already in Genesis 1, you have God being distinguished from the Spirit of God. Right? And then you get to the New Testament and you have the, uh, the Apostle John in John chapter 1 purposefully hearkening our attention back to those Genesis 1 themes. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And John says in verse 3 of chapter 1, speaking of the Son, all things were created through Him and without Him was nothing made that has been made. And so what we get from the picture of the Scriptures is God the Father creating the world through His Son by the Spirit. Um, the Father... Excuse me, I've lost my place here. Um, and so, sorry, the confession begins by stating that the, when we talk about creation, we're not just talking about something the Father does. We're talking about something God does, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this first act of God is His initiating and bringing the divine decree into actuality. Um, as the confession says, putting on display His power and His wisdom and His goodness. This is that great act which begins history that will eventually culminate in His glory being seen supremely in His grace towards sinners in the Gospel. So that's the first thing. It's a Trinitarian um, work. But secondly, notice that phrase, to manifest His glory. Okay, that's, that's a purpose statement. This is why God created it. It says, to manifest His glory. Now, the word to manifest means to show forth. It means to dis put on display. And that's very important. And this is one of the things, especially in the Old Testament prophets, this is what sets God apart from the false idols and the false gods of the nations. Namely, the true God did not create the world out of need. That's something that God is constantly mocking false gods for. Is that you, They need people to make them, first of all. And then the people bow down as though the gods need something from them. And they, you know. Contrary to that, the true and the living God does not create out of need. And He did not create to get something from His creation, but He created to give. Okay? Creation is the manifestation of the divine glory by which the beneficence of God, the goodness of God, is put on display for the good of His creatures. Um, I don't know if you remember back in chapter 2, I believe it's paragraph 2. Um, actually, I'm questioning that. It might be paragraph 2 of chapter 2. It explicitly makes the statement that God does not derive glory from His creation. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and... I think at first glance, sometimes that can shock Christians. What do you mean? The Bible's constantly talking about give glory to God, right? Glorify God. That's true. And that language is fine. But when we talk about giving glory to God, we're not actually talking about adding to God some sort of intrinsic worth that He gains from our giving Him glory. But rather, we're simply talking about us beholding the manifestation of His glory and recognizing God for what He is. So that's the, one of the purposes of creation is that in this theater of God, as Calvin called it, that's what he referred to creation as. In this theater of God is where we 
behold being put on display the attributes and the glory of God. Now, uh, moving on, it says, it pleased God to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible. Now, just for clarity, when the confession says here that it pleased God to make the world and all things therein, that's a summation for all of creation, right? And it's not just talking about this planet. It's talking about everything that God created, right? Genesis 1, very comprehensively, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's an all-inclusive summary. So the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, all of that is comprehended under this phrase, the earth. And that, that's significant. Again, contrary to the false gods and the false idols of men, the true and the living God is not like many of the, um, the deities that existed alongside Israel. Uh, a lot of the neighboring lands believed that they're, they believed in territorial de- deities. That this God is able to protect us when we're here, but once you pass over certain, you know, a certain other area, there's a different God who's kind of... The Bible denies all of that and describes all of creation as the property of the one true God. He rules over it all because He made it all. Um, And when we talk about God making the world or creating the world, that includes... You've got a spill there, just so you know. (laughs) I'm watching the middle of the aisle get flooded. Um, When we talk about God creating the world or... um, making the world, that includes things that we perhaps don't often give thought to. Um, When we think of God creating the world, we often think of the dirt, the trees, the animals, right? And to be sure, those are the things that Genesis 1 and 2 describe God making. But there are other kinds of things that Genesis, um, uh, excuse me, there are other kinds of things that Genesis doesn't explicitly mention that we also realize these two are creatures of God. Um, For instance, God didn't just create things within time and space, but God brought into existence time and space itself, right? So before creation, there was nothing but God. And we know God is timeless, eternal, and boundless, And so, when Genesis says, in the beginning, it's not just saying the beginning of when physical stuff began to be. It's describing the very beginning of time itself. Um, Genesis 1 is when history and time began for the first time. Um, Augustine said, uh, I'll quote him, (coughs) he said, God did not create the world in time as if creation fell upon some point in an already existing stream of time, but God made the world with time. In other words, time is God's creature. Uh, Time is a created thing, appointed to accomplish God's ends. We could say the same thing about space. Um, We shouldn't think of God creating as though He just created things to occupy space, but rather God created space itself so that there might be things within it to to occupy it. Um, God also created, I'll mention this, this is a a big one that we sometimes don't give credit for. God also created what we might call the natural laws that govern creation. Um, This is significant. This is something I think the atheist should be challenged by. Um, The atheist or the materialist 
They're looking at the same world we look at, right? It's not like once you become a Christian, all of a sudden you're given you know, special eyes to see. You know. They're looking at the same world we see, the same general creation, general revelation. And the atheists, they look out at this world which is obviously just filled with design. And the atheist sees the same sun we see as it runs its perfect course. Um, they see the precision of the water cycle and how the snow deposits in the mountains and at the right time it melts slowly which creates streams by which birds and animals get their drink and their food they see rain falls and it produces crops for cattle produce food for man they see all of those things the same way we see them and yet when the atheist is asked the question why do these things work that way all the atheists can say is they just do. Right? But the Christian has a better answer than that. Consider Psalm 104. Speaking of the Lord's work, starting in verse 10. The psalmist writes, He, the Lord, sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. The Lord waters the hills from His upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for cattle and vegetation for the service of man that He may bring forth food from the earth. Uh, verse 15. Uh, God, the Lord gives wine that makes glad the heart of man and oil to make His face shine and bread which strengthens man's hearts. Uh, verse 19. He, the Lord, appointed the moon for seasons, and the sun knows it's going down. The Lord makes darkness, and it is night in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. And, and on and on and on in that psalm, describing the world. And it's, in, it's an amazing thing, something that we should point out to our atheist friends, that the world is as it is, and the world runs as it runs, not just because it does, and not just by some random coincidences, but because the God who made the world in wisdom designed all of it. He's the one who designed weather patterns. He's the one who gives animals their instinct. He's the one who tells the sea its boundaries, Job tells us. Um, he's, I'll give you some of these. These examples might seem funny, but they're, they're, we ought to give God glory for these, these things. Um, God is the one who decreed that water should flow downhill and not uphill, right? And we often just think, well, of course, that's just the way it is. Well, no, it didn't have to be that way. God could have made it so that you don't know what water's going to do. Some days it goes up, some days it goes down, right? But he's done all of these things and set these things in, in um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Predictable. He set these things in in place in such a predictable manner that makes life for man not chaos, right? God decreed that wood should be soft enough to cut, but strong enough to hold up a house. Um, he decreed that, you know, you mix cement and rock and water, and it's pliable enough to, sh to shape foundations, but after it sets, it's sturdy and it's not going anywhere, and you can build your house upon all of those things are not just random. Those are things that God set in place. That this is the way His world will occupy or will operate. Excuse me. 
And we owe Him praise for those things. All of those things exist the way they do for man's prosperity. They make our existence possible. They save us from all sorts of chaos. I I can't imagine what the world would be like if all of those things we just talked about all of a sudden just tomorrow, it's just different. (laughs) Wood no longer burns for heat. Uh, Water, for some reason, is floating uphill. I mean, it would be chaos, but God has created these things for our good and set them uh, in, in order. Um, now, moving on, that's just an example of some things that we probably don't often think about when we think of God creating all things. Um, I want to move on. The confession doesn't explicitly make any comment about the what we might call the character of how God creates, although I think it's implied in the word made or create. Um, <coughs> Specifically, it doesn't use language, the language that has become fairly standard and commonplace in Christian thought throughout the history of the church, namely the language of ex nihilo. How many of us have heard those words, ex nihilo? How many of us know what they mean? Okay, that's fair. I was going to try to embarrass someone. Out of nothing, right? Uh, ex nihilo means out of nothing. Um, that language, I actually don't, was it Augustine? Who's first credited for using ex nihilo? Okay, don't quote me on that. It's somewhere around there. It might be Augustine. Um, but even though the confession doesn't make this explicit, I want to just, just comment on it for a second. God's creation, when we speak of God creating, we need to always remember and, and make perfectly clear in our minds that His creation is utterly and, dis- and completely unique and distinct. Okay, it's in a category of His own. Uh, It's not something that human beings participate in. It's not something that we imitate. Not something that we can copy. And I say that because um, there's become somewhat of a common... Some of you are more familiar with this than even I would be because of the the Christian backgrounds you come from. But there are some Christians who are very loose in their language. And they use language that not just makes it sound, but even says that in some sense we are co-creators with God. Um... And obviously when they say that, they don't mean that, yeah, I was back there then and I helped God at the beginning. That's not, that's not what they're saying. But even, even things like the popular phrase, speak life. How many of us have seen that? You know, hashtag speak life, right? Um, what that's implying and getting at, at least in some of the worst circles, is that in some sense, my words have creative power in the sense that God's words have creative power, Right? That if I say something, that it actually might make a difference on how my tomorrow goes. Now, there's no doubt, I mean, Proverbs says a lot about this, if I choose to use my tongue for good or for bad, no doubt there will be consequences for that. But nowhere does Proverbs or any of the, any of the rest of the Bible say that my tongue has creative power to actually change circumstance or decree a circumstance or anything like that. Um, Man, here getting back to God being in a, in a category of his own, man was commissioned by God to subdue the earth and to take dominion under God, but the fashion by which we take dominion is infinitely below God's work of creation. Like when God created, he created out of nothing, without effort, everything that is. You read Genesis 1, you don't get the sense that this is a a God who just had to work himself to the bone and he's sweating. Finally, the sixth day comes and he's finished with you. You don't get that sense. It's just a series of God's decrees speaking into existence. And as soon as he speaks, 
what He spoke, comes into existence. No depletion in God's creative work. Uh, no depletion in God from His creative work. Um, that's very different from our taking dominion and our working, so to speak. Um, I remember a story about a man. <coughs> I don't remember if this was Sproul that I got this story from. It sounds like it could be a Sproul story. It sounds like he would uh, give one of his, his chuckles and laughs at the end of it. Uh, but it was the story about a man, obviously it's a made-up story to illustrate a point, but the story about a man who thought he could come up with a better creation than God came up with. And so God comes down to him and, challenge, and says, fine, you, you want a shot at this, let's you know, have a contest, we'll see whose creation is better. And God makes something, and this, you know, this guy who thinks he can do better, he kind of looks at it like, okay, that's, that's pretty good, but you know, just watch this. And the guy begins to like scoop up dirt in order to you know, fashion something, and God just says, no, 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 get your own dirt. Right? That, that's where Sproul would have chuckled, by the way. Okay. Um, that illustrates the point of we as men and women, as we subdue the earth under God's lordship, we're just moving dirt around, right? In a very real sense, we're moving the furniture around that God has given to us. Um, and I'm not denying, man, by God's uh, wisdom, has made incredible things. You look at some of the, the dams and there's feats that have been accomplished by man. It's an incredible example of man taking dominion. Um, but literally all we're doing, we're moving dirt around. We're taking the stuff that God put here out of nothing, taking that and we're just putting it in order, so to speak. So very different from how we speak about God's creation ex nihilo out of nothing. Um, okay, now, and this is going to be the last thing. I'm going to, I'm going to pause after this, um, see if we have questions. Uh, the, ne- the last thing that I want to talk about is the confession then contains these words towards the end in the space of six days. Um, I'll just say this. I'm probably among a crowd of friends, but who uh, I assume most of you, hopefully all of you, agree with me on this. Uh, but that's not as common as you might think uh, in today's Christian world. Anyone who wants to take a less than literal approach to Genesis 1 through 11 is not going to find a friend in the confession here. Because it includes in its confession explicitly, not just that God created the world, but it gives a time frame in the span of six days. And this is a very controversial um, topic in our day. One that honestly shouldn't be, and I'll say something about that, about the reasons for that, uh, or the reasons for why I think even genuine Christians question whether we should read Genesis at face value on these things. Um, But I'll put it this way. Any serious scholar who accepts the Bible as the Word of God and does not have other things outside of the Bible driving his interpretation of the Bible... No serious scholar can deny that the Bible teaches a literal six-day creation. Uh, Joel Beakey, I'll quote him, and this is, I couldn't agree with this more. He says, quote, It is crucial that our interpretation of the Bible be controlled by the Bible itself, not by outside considerations such as scientific theories. I couldn't agree more with that statement. Um, 
If there is an area today where the authority of the Bible is being questioned, and not only that, but where that questioning is just generally seen as an acceptable thing to do, even amongst Reformed Christians, if there's any subject where that's true, it is regarding the creation account. And as some of you probably know, maybe all of you are familiar, there have been, by Christians, and I'm not saying that if you don't agree with this, it immediately makes you not a Christian. I will say it's a bad sign, and it shows a hesitancy to believe the Bible against modern science and what have you. Um, But there have been theories imposed upon Genesis by even genuine Christians in order to stretch out the timeline of Genesis in order to do justice to what they believe is irrefutable scientific evidence that the world is billions of years old. Right? Because that's what we're taught. I mean, many of us homeschool in this room. We homeschool. But even though we usually get to filter the books that our children read, it's like almost impossible. It seems like every now and then it's just like, what did, what did your book just say? How many billions? You know, what did it say? And it's like, it's everywhere. I mean, that is just the accepted by the non-believing world the accepted theory that what scientists say is fact, billions and billions and billions and evolution and progression and all these things. Um, I'll give you a couple of those just to familiarize yourself with them in case you're not and it could be a jumping off point for further study. And I'll give you some reasons why we should reject these theories. Um, The first is called the gap theory. How many of us have heard of the gap theory? Okay, some. Um, Some Christians have proposed the idea that there's a long gap in Genesis 1 between verse 1 and 2, okay? So they would read Genesis 1, 1 and 2 like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pause. (laughs) Long pause, okay? Billions of years, pause. And then, right, that's why it's called a gap theory, and then we pick up at verse 2. The earth was formless, uh, without, or it was uh, without form and void. And then we get to the six, six days of creation, right? Um, in other words, in this view, we can deduce from the Bible how old mankind is, right? Because we can trace genealogies back to wherever, you know, man started. But we have no way of knowing the age of the earth because there was this big, long gap. And that's obviously where Christians are wanting to kind of fit in all the science they're reading of, okay, that's where, you know, fossils and whatever and, you know, these types of things fit in. Um, Here's the problem. Absolutely no biblical evidence for that, right? In fact, there's plenty of evidence to to the contrary that other writers of the Bible disagree with that interpretation. And I'll give you an example. Um... (coughs) that is pretty much the definition of eisegesis, right? Bible just doesn't seem like it can be true if it really means what it seems to say. So, let's come up with a theory that does make it fit with what we know to be true, right? Um, Here's the thing. You would never arrive at the gap theory unless you were driven to do so by an outside pressure. No one would ever read Genesis 1 and just like, oh, of course, there's a billion-year gap there. It doesn't read like that. There's no reason to think that. Um, Also, the rest of the Scripture contradicts the idea of a gap theory. So, for instance, and follow follow me here, this is a very powerful argument if you come in contact with Christians who want to propose this. Um, For instance, the Lord Jesus Himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, 
when he is describing the creation of man, he describes it as, quote, from the beginning of creation. Okay? So what's the significance of that? Jesus is talking about the creation of man and he locates it from the beginning of creation. Well, that doesn't work if really man was created billions of years after creation started, right? Um, another example is, um, oh, I don't think I gave a scripture reference, so you'll have to look this one up. Um, but where he says the blood of, he's describing the blood of the martyrs, and he says, since Abel, the first martyr, has been shed from the foundation of the world. So again, he's locating Abel where? Very close to the beginning of the creation of the world, not billions of years after the creation of the world. So unless you want to say Jesus was just wrong about that, which I haven't met any Christians who just want to say that, clearly, according to Jesus and how he understands the Old Testament, the creation of the world happened very close to the creation of man, not billions of years before. Okay? So that's, that's the gap theory. A second theory is called the day-age theory. If you've heard of the gap theory, you've probably heard of the day-age theory. Works on similar presuppositions. It's just kind of a slightly different explanation. Um, this theory says that the days of Genesis 1 are not literal 24-hour days, but rather they are a description of a long sequence of six long ages. Okay? So that's another way they're trying to fit a whole bunch of time into this, right? As, well, day doesn't mean day. It just is figurative for... I don't know, what's 14 million divided by 6? 2 point something million years, okay? Um, some, even, and this is concerning, there's varying degrees of this. Some of these brothers, it's like, hey, you're my brother, strongly disagree. Others, it's like, man, they're toying with certain things that it's just like, you know, it brings a lot of things into question. Some even go so far as to teach what's called progressive creationism, and this is to basically kind of adopt... Um, um, evolutionary theory, and they will argue that through these long ages, God actually progressively created new kinds of creatures, and they appeal to that to kind of explain the evolution of things and things like that. Um, most who advocate for this view, they argue that day in Scripture sometimes is used to refer to long periods of time in the Bible, which is true. Right? We shouldn't be afraid to admit that. For instance, Psalm 90, verse 4. A thousand years in your sight is but as yesterday and even as a watch in the night. Right? So, a thousand years in the Lord's perspective can seem like a watch in the night. And they kind of look at that, see? A night, a day can be a, a long period of time. Um, or Peter, 2 Peter 3, 8. One day is with the Lord a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so they'll appeal to these other texts and say that's, that's the type of way we should take day in Genesis. Okay, again, what's the problem with that? Those other texts that they're looking at and appealing to are not commentaries on Genesis 1. I mean, that would be significant if Psalm 90 had anything to do with Genesis 1 and it started saying day and using it in that. Okay, that would be significant. Those other passages have nothing to do with the creation account. Psalm 90 is saying that because it's stressing God's, um, his, I'm going to confuse it, Peter's talking about God's patience, eternity, there we go. Psalm 90 is talking about God's eternity, 
right? That even though this world waxes on and on and on and it seems like forever to us, God is not like that, right? God is not just really old. He's eternal. Whereas Peter, when he says a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, he's emphasizing the patience of God, not bringing judgment and giving time for sinners to repent. So it has nothing to do with Genesis 1. And that's what's really, really concerning is these kinds of, what would you call it, an imposition? Is that the right word? Imposing these things on another text. Um, these, those kinds of things, once you embrace that, that sets a very dangerous precedent for hermeneutics in general and just how we do Bible interpretation. Because think about it, if there's one area where, you know, it's pretty obvious to everyone, Genesis 1, when it says morning and evening, and there was morning and evening, pretty obvious it's talking about literal days, but I'm just going to deny all that because of what I've heard over here that's not authoritative, it's by unbelieving scientists, but I'm just going to deny Genesis and try to make it fit with this. Well, guess what that's going to make you do in other parts of the Bible that just seem, quote-unquote, to someone to not line up with what we know to be true. It sets a trajectory where the Bible no longer sits over the sciences, it no longer sits over philosophy, but it sits under them. And we're just going to now make the Bible say whatever we need it to say in order to make true what we assume is true in the outside, you know, outside type world. Um, but again, the problem with this view is, again, Jesus' comment about since the creation of the world would also be prob- problematic with this view because you'd have the sixth age some billions of years after the first age. Um, but also, even Moses himself, right? You think of the, of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The fourth commandment is on the Sabbath, right? And part of the Sabbath command to Israel was you shall work six days and on the seventh day you shall rest. And how does Moses, what does Moses root that pattern in? He says, for God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Our weekly pattern of six days of work, one day of rest is not based upon an idea of day that means a long, long, long age, right? And so obviously Moses himself interpreting the creation account understood it to be six literal 24-hour days, which is the model for our work week, which is six 24-hour days and then a day of rest. So again... Unless you just want to totally jettison the authority of the Bible unless, and, and the inerrancy of the Bible, and you just want to say, you know, Moses was wrong, Jesus was mistaken. Unless you want to do that, there's no way around it. The Bible itself assumes that the creation of Genesis 1 was six literal days. Um, and, and the question for us is not whether it actually believes that. The question for us is, do we accept that? Or are we going to accept other authorities and allow them to change what God has said in His Word? And obviously, our um, commitment is that we always go with the Word of God over the Word of man. Okay? Consider the source. Unbelieving scientists who hate God and are in rebellion against God are not neutral. When they come to science, they are not neutral. They have theories that have been in place for a hundred years that it would be very costly to them if they just all of a sudden say, this totally undoes that. And so we as Christians, not that we don't believe science will agree with the Bible. We do. It's not like we're saying, yeah, we don't really know. (laughs) 
how this world makes any sense. It totally contradicts the Bible. We agree. Science, when done properly, will agree with the Bible. But when other authorities, like unbelieving scientists, tell us something that disagrees with the Scripture, we should always, as our knee-jerk reaction, say, you know what? Even if I can't explain it, I'm going to believe God on this. He was there. He did it. He told me this is how it happened. And eventually, that will be proved correct. So, um, let, me, let me just close with one very brief application, something that we should take away from this. What this means is that God is Lord of all creation. Right? We sing, um, all people that on earth... Um, all people that on earth do dwell. There we go. I'm struggling with my hymns today. Um, we sing that line, without our aid, without our aid, He did us make. And therefore we should sing, all creatures that on earth do dwell. Sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Serve Him with joy. His praise foretell. Come ye before Him and rejoice. Psalm 95 says, for the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are also His. And then verse 5, the sea is His. Why? For He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. That should be the response of our hearts as we consider the greatness of God the glory of His goodness, His wisdom, His power, as it's displayed in creation, it should remind us we are His, not only by creative rights, but by redemptive rights. He sent His Son to shed His blood for our sakes. And therefore, how much do we owe Him our honor, our, the glory that we owe to Him, and our service in His purposes and in His kingdom. So, I'll close there and open it up for discussion or questions if any, anyone has. I know I didn't hit every little detail and everything I could have uh, in this paragraph, but trying to hit some of the high points. Aaron? Yeah, I think the issue of neutrality, uh, the supposed neutrality of scientific discoveries, uh, scientific claims, is something that we really need to be diligent in standing firmly against. Because all of the old earth, old universe theories begin with the assumption, since there is no God. Mm -hmm. Since there is no God, what's the best explanation of a merely material process that would have produced what we see. Yep. And that assumption is unproven and lays right at the very foundation of all of these old earth claims. And for Christians to not see that, and for yep. Christians to be given to believing, well, the scientific community has settled this matter, well, they began it by just yep. assuming with, with just a, a blatant, massive assumption that they've never made an yep. argument for, never proven in any way whatsoever. So we should not be at all intimidated by such a claim. Yep. And then secondly, um, just the issue of how Christians ought to receive revelation, as you pointed out, that natural revelation can never trump special revelation, that we always need to assume that God's deliberate revelation of himself in his word is superior to our interpretation of him by what he's made. 
Yeah. Just as if we were to take anything that, you know, some brilliant engineer designed, their explanation of it is always going to supersede our understanding of what it is they've done. Exactly. Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, you brought something to mind that I was going to say. Uh, it's going to be one of those moments where I just lose it. It'll come back, maybe. But yeah, both of those are really, really good points, Aaron. Appreciate that. Steph. Just going off of what Aaron said about their um, just their basic assumption is that there is no God, and then from there they start to theorize how the Earth was created. Yeah. Um, but even when you're taught in school in science class, the whole point of science is you're making observations, and they don't teach it as observable science. They teach it as a theory that yep. now is fact. And if you say anything against it, you're just yep. seen as ridiculous. But they're going against everything that they teach because yep. you can't observe. No, there's no way to observe what happened. So exactly, it's just we weren't there. And I think that's an area where Christians. Um, I think Christians need to grow comfortable with the idea that it's okay that even other Christians are going to look at us like we're naive, ignorant people, right? And what I mean by that is I've had genuine Christians, I believe they, were, they knew the Lord, but say to me things like, well, if this earth isn't really old, God sure made it to look that way. Now, what's he basing that off of? He's basing that not off of his own observation, but because someone somewhere in a textbook probably told him it looks really old. But honestly, like, who of us can go out and look at a rock and just, yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> I don't know, this is 500 million years old. I mean, isn't it obvious to you? I mean, but we assume that because someone somewhere tells us we've got the technology, and by the way, we know that everyone's heard the stories about, like, you know, they sent a microwave in to like get tested. And like, yeah, that was three billion years old as well. You know, notwithstanding that stuff, it's like I think Christians need to be comfortable that, especially in an age like ours that worships science, quote unquote, which really means worshiping the theories that are put forth as fact in science. It's okay that the world's going to regard us as fools. You know, and I think we need to be comfortable with that and comfortable with challenging why? Why do you believe what you believe? Like, have you? been given adequate proof to actually believe that's fact. So, still trying to remember what I was going to say to you, Aaron, and it's not going to come back. It was about your second point. Paul. Uh, so, one, one thing I wanted to say is um, the, the subject of science is interesting because like, if, if a doctor's you know, doing an x-ray or you're looking at a machinery that we're inventing or there's a new you know excavation tool we we approach how we handle things in our life today as the bible describes of like order it's not chaotic we're very you know meticulous with that type of science but when you do look into the subject of origins and science a lot of people can't distinguish that it falls in a different category right i don't i don't approach my work with the amount of looseness that comes to those other categories because mm. 
if if you're working in construction, you know, there's there's a lot of money related to that. So we, you know, all of a sudden the mindset changes, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying that you know money is the driver, but it yeah. kind of makes that Romans one passage about professing to become wise, they become fools and yeah. they're darkened. It brings it into a new light because when we when I was sitting and studying in school, it seems like when we would have certain conversations, the whole rubric of how we view it would change versus when we're going into like you know learning about electricity or whatever it's mm. it's kind of a different standard yeah so just something to keep in mind that you know there's you, you can't test a rock without knowing the date you just send it in and they might you might know where when it was formed and they come back with a different date yeah but it's it's a good place to start to know how those things work but it, it under the word of god i think is important absolutely that's yep. that's really the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Brandon. One of the things that we observe in creation is, and I think Ken Ham, a lot of creation scientists will point this out as well. That, um, and 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 I've tested this taking Braxton when he was we were homeschooling, taking him to fairs and um, uh, many places where they have like telescopes and you have somebody that's telling you about you know these the astronomy of, of things, measuring how far planetary bodies are. But um, God created Adam in, with maturity, in maturity. Mm-hmm. And, and God could create and could have created things with maturity. Yep. Uh, light in motion yep. as he set the stars and the skies for, uh, for the measurement um, of the seas and, and, and for seasons. Those things were created in, in motion. Yep. Um, so a lot of times we find um, you know, secular science wanting to um, to answer the question about how we explain these things, because obviously to them they they start from there is no God. Yeah. Um, but discounting the wisdom of God, discounting the word of God, as Paul says, uh, they become fools, as yeah. the scriptures tell us. Um, one in Braxton one time, and this just kind of sticks out, was uh, the guy who was um, talking about the distance between um, one of the moons of Jupiter and and the Earth. And, um, and he, he had said that it would take, you know, X amount of time to get there. That, therefore, then the thing that we're looking at must be X years old. And so we, I had raised my hand, and I, I asked him how he was measuring that. And he says, well, we, we can measure distance across galaxies by light years, and that can tell us how old something is. And I, I said, light years is a measurement of distance, not a measurement of time, but distance over time or time over distance. So you don't, you're not telling how old a thing is by how far away it is, mm-hmm. but you're telling us how long it takes to get there. It's, it's a measurement of time. and You have to be careful because even in their own standards, their own measurements, they may not even use them correctly, but they're bending their measurements to fit their worldview. Yeah. Um, I've seen that in, at Stanislaus County Fair. I've seen it in uh, places we've taken, you know, taken our son to, to see those things. It, it's interesting when you challenge them, they, they have no answer. Yeah. for how you can possibly know those things. <laughs> yep. But we begin from a totally different place than they do. Yeah, and I think, too, it's kind of to Paul's point, there's almost no consequence, so to speak. Like, if I just decide to speak my mind, I don't really know why, but I believe that this thing is this many millions of miles. You know, it's not really going to change anyone's life. No one's going to die because of that mistake, right? But, like, in science, in, like, fields like electricity and stuff like that, you don't work with such loose, like, ah, probably that's fine. You know what I mean? It's because it's already been tested before and someone, you know, got hurt or died because we did it that way and that doesn't work, right? We, we've observed that and that's why we now, you know, this is... But I think a lot of these 
and this, these are, again, things that Christians don't necessarily think about, is like, there are many things that drive why someone might want to give certain information. Money, popularity, you know, inventing something new, you name it. There's all the, you know, acclaim. Um, and to, like to your point, Aaron, to think that that's, that there's just neutrality, right? Anyone in the field of science, they're just doing their best. They've got no, wherever the evidence leads, that's where they want to follow. <laughs> We're being naive at that point if we believe that, yeah. right? And so we need to remember those things, yeah. Aaron? Oh, is it out of battery? No, it's not out of battery. But uh, cuts out. Um, that's TV channel interference in the air. Um, so the other point that you made about uh, the distinction between our creativity and God's creativity as yep. his creation ex nihilo, our creation as simply a, a reorganizing of the mm -hmm. things that he's already made, right? I think that's so important for Christians to understand today, especially as we do have the Word of Faith, NAR movement, yeah. that teaches that wisdom is a creative force. And so because of that, if you speak according to wisdom, you now have creative power in the same way that God does, that you can speak realities into existence. Yeah. And with that heresy being so prevalent in our culture today, with that being mainstreamed in the culture, even among those who don't even really identify as Christian, right, yet they hold on to this kind of perversion of a Christian heresy through sources like Joel Osteen, like Oprah Winfrey, who make these things so, so prominent and popular, um, it is important that we understand that and we have that answer to, to recognize that, you know, while Scripture says that God created through wisdom, it's not wisdom abstractly, right? Yeah. It is himself. It is his own wisdom that governed over his creation and not something outside of him, but that is his own expression yeah. of himself. Yeah. So that distinction, I think, is really important, especially yeah. as many of us do know those who claim the name of Christ and are caught up in, in movements that would claim that we have equal creative power yeah. or a, a, an equivalent creative yeah. power with God. Or even just a similar, you know what I mean? Even if you want to say it's on a way lesser level than God, but it's still... It's got things in common. It's like that, that's, a big, that's a big departure from the Christian worldview.